This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Women Who Knew Jesus. And joining me from California, near the city of San Francisco, is author Dr. Bonnie Ring. Welcome to the program. Thank you. This is a, a book that uh, is unique in several uh, several uh, perspectives, I guess. Uh, one, it deals specifically with uh, the women of the New Testament and their relationship to Christ. Uh, how did you come up with the idea of wanting to write this book? Oh, it's a wonderful story. I was in my first year of seminary at the age of 46, and uh, the instructor in church history said we needed to write five meditations about saints from the first 500 years of the church. And I flippantly said, is it all right if I choose all women? Mm -hmm. And he answered me and said, well, sure, though I can't think, I I don't think I can think of five that would qualify. Mm. That was fighting words. Well, I not only discovered those five, but I discovered there was a whole slew of women that Jesus interacted with, and they had a very different attitude toward him and a response to him than the male disciples did. Absolutely. You have uh, included in here the many well-known figures from the New Testament uh, interaction with Christ. And one thing I found interesting about your book and your style is that you have uh, sort of written this in a way that it could be done as a or read as a devotional guide. It could be used in a church setting, could be used in a community setting. What was it is being done? That is being done now. Wonderfully. There are churches all over that are reading the book together and responding to it, and it's it's it allows an individual to do it on their own. I have friends who say, "I'm re- this is one book. I'm really going to do the exercises. I I would resist it normally." Yes, at the end of each chapter, you have a sort of a meditation area and questions that will delve into the thinking of the reader and get them interacting with the content. I think that's a yeah, wonderful approach. Yeah, the meditations approach. allow them to think about how that woman would be feeling and how Jesus might be feeling. And then the questions ask them to apply the same circumstances to their lives now. I have noted in your biography that you also had some, uh, I will will call it, um, theatrical involvement in your church setting. Um, Doing, uh, how would you describe those those, uh, activities? I'm not sure I know what you're talking about. Well, I may have misread then. I I had the impression that you had done some, uh, uh, not theatrical, but but, uh, dramatic uh, interaction and uh, interpreting some of the stories. Well, Uh, less less so in church and more in my retreats. Mm. I I got the, the participants to act out the stories, and they became alive for them. And then when I was a student, I took a course, a wonderful course called the Gospel of John as instant theater. Correct. And it was in, I think this is the instant that you're thinking of, and yes. it was in the experience of playing the role of Mary Magdalene that I really got it, that it's so powerful to to experience the person telling their story. And, well, of course, that's the way the Gospel was originally formed, 
Well, thank you so much for heard the stories yes. and reacted. Thank you so much for reinforcing the fact that I am not losing my uh, my intellect. <laughs> totally. Uh, the reason also that I brought that up in in thinking of the uh, the questions and the meditations at the end of your chapter, I was thinking that those uh, did you write those with the intent of perhaps those being portrayed and uh, reenacted? Uh, no, I let's see the 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 questions first formed as I did retreats with women around the women who knew Jesus. And um, then I added to them as I was writing the book to make it more complete and to to allow each woman to kind of engage herself in the in the story. As I was reading it, and uh, of course that again I have a little bit of a creative background. It it sort of took me into the theater, into a theatrical setting where I could maybe interact with other people and uh, retell that story maybe from my perspective using those as a guideline. That's just something well, that's, that impressed that's me. That's what we did in the Gospel of John as Instant Theater. Yes. We took the story and we read it, we recreated it as a script and we acted it out and then as a class we talked about the impact that that story had on us seeing it right in front of us phenomenal 247 pages how long did it take you to complete this dr ring it took about a year and a half to write and then another six months to edit Hmm. is there anything that you discovered in your research that is not commonly known in the christian faith that maybe stood out to you a little bit Probably the most striking thing is the impact these women had on Jesus. Um, some of them changed his mind about things or opened up discussions that had never been held before. For instance, the Samaritan woman at the well mm-hmm. was somebody who was really, she's on the cover of the book, she, was, she avoided the people in town because they disparaged her and she was, she was considered kind of loose and, and immoral. And... Um, when she got talking to Jesus, at first she was very resistant. You know, men didn't talk to women they didn't know, and Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. But after she got engaged with him, she started to get excited about what he was saying, and she said to him, well, you know, you Jews think that you should only worship in the temple in Jerusalem, but we Samaritans have a different place that we worship. And Jesus said something he never said anywhere else. Where you worship, worship will not matter. It is how you worship, whether you worship with an open heart, with all your being in, in response to God. Remarkable insight. Absolutely. Yeah. And also the fact that Jews and, and uh, Samaritans really did not I- interact at all. In fact, I'm sure the disciples no, long, were pretty alarmed. Long history of despising one another. Right. And Christ eliminated that barrier not only with the Samaritans, but also with uh, with the ladies or, or with women, because that, again, was probably a cultural uh, uh, no-no. Oh, yeah. no, no, no moral Jew would have approached women the way Jesus did. He, he just disregarded the custom, and he treated them as equals. What did you think the impact of these women you have uh, highlighted in your book had on the early church? Or did anything happen because well, of their... Well, I think, I think their impact on the early church was diminished as the early church became more concerned with its own acceptability. Many of these women were um, figures, many women were figures in the early church in, in running house churches and mm-hmm. celebrating the Eucharist. And then as the culture um, 
as, as the desire for acceptability in the Roman culture got greater, they got more restrictive towards women. And, um, and then the worst story of all is the story of Pope Gregory, who thought that Mary Magdalene was a, a prostitute. Mm. And he, he conflated several different stories about different women, none of whom were really prostitutes, but one of them was a repentant woman of something. And he put them all together, and he called her Mary Magdalene. And so in the Eastern Church, she has been referred to as the Apostle to the Apostles, because she was the first to see the risen Christ. But in the Western Church, it took them until Vatican II in the 60s to admit really? that their story about Mary Magdalene was wrong. Incredible. What, yeah. do you, what do you hope the reader will take away from this church? Did you, did you write this specifically for women to read, or is this something that it's, will be, uh, you know, everyone is going to find uh, I, value? I have found men, men find it very interesting. I think women are excited by it because it offers them some models that are relevant today to, um, to be outspoken, to be... Um, committed to the things they value, to um, to treat Jesus as somebody that was important and who understood him in ways that the men did not. So she's a, they're all great role models, and we all need role models. Men and women need role models. Well, that's true. People that we, we, we you know, can aspire to be like. Which of the women that you highlighted do you feel is uh, maybe at the top of that, that list of, of people we should admire? Oh, that's hard. Um, well, my favorite has always been Mary Magdalene. Yes. Um, and I I think that um, the more I've gotten to know her, the more I've gotten to appreciate her. But I also think that I have, uh, just my own feelings about these women has, has just deepened as a result of writing the book. And uh, the Samaritan woman, I would not have guessed that I would have put her on the cover three years ago. But I went through all the pictures I had of all the women with my spiritual director, and we both picked her because mm. she she was a nobody. She was an un she was an unacceptable woman in her in her culture, and Jesus treated her like she was worth every every bit as much as anybody else. Doesn't and that? And she then turned around and got her people to come listen to him and convert. And that really is the underscored message of the gospel. Yes. The message is we can all bring other people to Jesus. You have uh, talked about the woman who had an issue of blood or hemorrhage and yes. her healing. Is there anything in history that goes beyond the scriptural account of that, or did, did you just highlight her faith in this, uh, in this account? No. I, actually, I begin by, by reading, uh, quoting from Leviticus what was, what was the rules in, in the Hebrew scriptural rules about how women were to behave when there was a flow of blood, whether it was menstruation or some other cause. And um, there was a purity code in Hebrew times that was especially applied to the women rather than the men. The men were, in fact, the purity code was impo in, in, imposed to protect the purity of the men. Mm. And so um, her her experience is, is not different from what Jewish women experienced all, all, all that time. And the red, the red Tent, that wonderful novel, is a, is a great description of Hebrew times and the women's response to being isolated and, and um, 
Set apart, actually. And set apart, set yes. apart when they were bleeding. Yeah, and 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 in her case, the the story is impactful because she had suffered for twelve years, hmm. and when she heard that there was this Jewish man who had cured a woman, Peter's mother-in-law. She thought, if I can only just get close enough to touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And by God, that happened. It's a, it's a wonderful story of faith, for sure, on many, level, on many levels. You yeah. also talk about the woman that Jesus sees from the cross. Uh, who is that woman? Mm, well, that's a big debate. Was that his I'm mom? I'm going to get in trouble, <laughs> I think, with some people, because I, I do not believe the woman at the cross was Mary, his mother. Hmm. I believe that he and she conflicted over how he was spending his life and that she was not there. The only one that says she was there is John, and that was written about 50 years later than the other Gospels. Uh, I believe that the women who were there were those who had served Jesus, and the primary among them was Mary Magdalene. And even in the Gospel of John, when when John says, uh, his beloved disciple, I think she was the beloved disciple. That's an she interesting... She was the one that had the closest understanding and relationship with him of all the followers. Controversial for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leaves us on a very interesting note. I will say this, uh, ch- 22 chapters, 262 pages. Uh, whoever picks this up is going to get a, uh, a great deal of thoughtful discussion about the women who knew Jesus. Uh, I think that they will find the meditations a uh, very engaging and dr- reflective examination of their knowledge of Jesus. And your next project? I'm working on an article about how this book helps us see Jesus more clearly and how Jesus is a model of a spiritual director to us, but the book is a spiritual director to us. Excellent. Well, thank you for yes. sharing this story, and, and happy to know that you are continuing your writing career. Well, again, you, the, the book, again, is titled Women Who Knew Jesus, and my author, who has joined me from California, is Bonnie Ring. Dr. Ring, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Well, they certainly can get it from my publisher, AuthorHouse, AuthorHouse.com, or they can get it from Amazon or any of the other online bookstores. Have you launched a website yet, or is yes. that something in the future? Oh, there's a wonderful website that AuthorHouse has created for me. It's www.womenwhonewjesus.com. Wonderful. Uh, again, for those who might want to do some uh, respectful uh, stalking online, your name is spelled B-O-N-N-I-E, last name R-I-N-G. Dr. Ring, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. My pleasure. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. 
To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled USFP, initials, A New Beginning, by author M.I. Clark joins me to talk about her publication and her novel. Welcome. And her first name also is Mira, so I will refer to you as Mira in the interview. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure visiting with you. Your book has a mm, provocative-looking photo on the cover. Share with my listeners the style of writing that you have uh, undertaken here in this novel. Well, it's sort of a cross between police stories and police-type story and science fiction. And it does uh, does does it take place? It does take place in the in the uh, current uh, time frame. Although it does deal with science fiction and uh, some of those some of those elements. Yes, the book begins in uh, March two thousand three. Two thousand three, and your main character is is uh, called Matrix. If I understand the the outline of your book, the main character is that male, female. How would you describe that to my listeners? And it talks about a sixty year uh, time frame or window before Matrix comes back on the scene. Share a little of that background story. Well, she was a. Uh, uh, Let's see, I'm looking at my board. She was uh, abducted from Exeter, England, England, April 25th, 1942, during the uh, certain battle that happened there from Germany. And uh, she was returned in September 2002. Uh, Was she shocked or alarmed by what she encountered with that absence? That is not in this book. There's more... To it, a lot more to it than that, and more, a great deal more than sixty years actually passed. But mm. since she's returned sixty years later, it only says sixty years. And who more of that will come out in other books. You are planning a, a sequel to this, and in fact, as I begin speaking with you this morning, you are actually undertaking that process as we speak. What is the the uh, uh, the attraction to this type of story? When did you decide you wanted to? put something into print. What's your creative background? Well, as a kid, I always wrote stories and poems and stuff. My dad always encouraged me. And then when I got married, my mother-in-law, she would proofread all my stories, but I never had any of them printed. And uh, she encouraged me to have something printed. Well, then in 2005, I started this series. And over a six-week period, I wrote eight or ten stories some entirety, some just ideas. And six or seven of them deal with this particular series. You have you have mentioned that you have a board or, I guess, an outline um, s- sketch of some type that you have worked from. Was this one that was fleshed out before you began putting the, the, the details to your character, or was it one that just was created through inspiration? The board is what, as I go along, I add things to it or take things from it so I can keep things in order. For example, her eye, her, this particular character's eyes change color with her emotions. Hmm. That's revealed in the book. Interesting. And you've managed to pen uh, 275 pages 
describe for me the the individual that's going to pick this book up and really gravitate toward this style of writing. I think anyone who likes pretty shows, uh, CSIs. Um, there's another series I watched, Lieutenant Hamid, uh, Kenda Homicide Hunter. Um, things along this line. Um, anyone that likes anything to do with the police. I like top shows. I'm the next cop. Ah, you have set this in Dallas-Fort Worth, a very high-profile city in the United States. Why did you choose DFW, as it's called in the in the in the region? I really don't know. It just sounded like a really neat area. I've been through the airport once, uh, changing flights, but that's as far as I've ever gotten. My brother lived down in Texas. Um, my family did it one time, but I was too little to remember. <laughs> so. It just intrigued you. You you uh, have have described this as uh, kind of a cross between science fiction, a cop uh, uh, book, if you want to call it that. Is there an action element to this, or was it all mystery? There is a lot of action. In this chapter two, is a lot of action. Other chapters have uh, chapter two starts off the story with the uh, arriving at the airport. It, it gives a little background in chapter one and two. She meets the guy that has the head in the box. Turns out it's a child's head, and then there's clues that lead her to where the body is and other things. And um, other children mm. and you do have a child on the front and is and is that your main character or is that just a depiction of just, other people that's just one of the children in the book i described her my artist through her and it just came out that way i like the cover it, he did and it is excellent I, it, it looks like a photograph almost i mean it's wonderfully done and and very uh, it draws you in you wonder what is happening to the characters in this book you also have mentioned the term alien in the book this is uh, having to do with es e, i was going to say espn with extraterrestrials correct yes i was just going to ask if that's the main thrust of your of your storyline the the uh, alien aspect of the of the book or is it the murder side the murder side in book one, as other books, it gives more, more and more details of of the alien abduction, what they did to her, why they did, what possibly why they did what they did to her, and how long she was really fr- taken from Earth and her true age. With them out in other books, the yeah. book with the plane crash is the most exciting book of all so far. Ah, and what do you hope to achieve? Most authors, of course, want to express themselves creatively, but is there something beyond that? Do you think that maybe there's enough storyline here that a, a a movie company may pick it up and adapt it for the screen? Yes, I do, because I've never heard or seen of anything with this cross in it before. I mean, there's been series where there's police officers out in, this, in the future, and then you got the series where police officers are in the present, but you don't have one that covers both at the same time. Is there a, a an aspect of the story, I, I see the word pedophilia that is also dropped in reference to your book, is that also part of the sub-theme of what you have, uh, have talked about? In book one, um, the actual suspect is a pedophile and his son. Hmm. That's intriguing. There's more to it than that that will come out in uh, future books. There's things in book one that point to future books. There's also red herrings. 
You've done a great job of making it a mystery, then. Uh, the title, USFP, what does that stand for? United States Federal Police. They can go anywhere in the world. This is a uh, an entity that really does not exist except in your imagination, though, correct? Correct. And this idea of uh, making an international or uh, non confined police force is this uh, something that came out of your work as uh, a law enforcement officer no just something you wanted to to see created in the fictional sense fictional i would not want it done in reality <laughs> thank you it's too horrifying to think about Thank you for saying that. I, I was a little bit nervous when you when you mentioned that. What do you think is the underlying uh, moral to the story? Is there one, or is it just a, a quick read and uh, a fast story for someone to enjoy? Well, I chose pedophiles as the first one because, pe- first of all, people don't want to believe they exist, or that their neighbor, their cousin, their brother, their son, or whatever could be one. But in 2005, I looked up the FBI uh, list on how many children are victims before they're caught. And that's 84. And a lot of those go on to victimize other children. I believe it. it. I felt it was a subject that had to be out there. Yeah, we personally, my my family personally, uh, was acquainted with someone who was a neighbor that was actively molesting small children we didn't realize it at the time and it uh, came out later in life so those things do happen they don't get uh, reported many times right a lot of time to pressure the, the family pressures the children not to come forward because it is a relative they don't want to have a stigma placed to their family what is your what is your hope you say you have a another book in the works if I could describe your short-term goals, what would those be? Would that be the completion of the second book, or is there other things also on the work uh, in the works? Well, I'm working on five or six books all at once. I get stuck in one, I'll jump to, back to one of the others, then I'll jump back when I, when That way I'm never not writing. Excellent idea, having a board with the uh, definitions and the uh, different... Storylines. Uh, I would be very confused if I didn't have something like that. So you have obviously become very organized in in doing your writing. How long does it take to complete a book of two hundred seventy nine pages? Well, I started mine in two thousand five. I sent it for print the first time in two thousand twelve, but there was an error between me and the company I used, and um, I stopped it. And then I had to redo it, fix their errors, and then I changed the book a little bit, and then. Uh, I resubmitted it, and it's. I saw on Amazon last night it was up for sale. Excellent. Now, your next book, how long do you think it'll be before that is released? Probably later this year. I'm thinking between September and November. Phenomenal. I'll be doing, I'll be doing book signings here in Michigan and then in uh, Florida at the end of the year. Excellent. We'll go down there for three months of the year. Congratulations on this, your first release. USFP, those are initials, subtitled A New Beginning. My author, M. I. Clark. Mira, thank you for joining me today, and where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Uh, author House has them. Listeners, you can also do a search under the name of the author, M. I. Clark, C-L-A-R-K. And those first two parts, M and I, are initials.
they will not only be able to locate this release, but also any books in the future. Mira, thank you for joining me today. Best of luck on this release and any project that you release in the future. And Amira, what is the age range or the age that you would say this book, this title is appropriate for? I'm thinking 16 just because of the pedophile aspect. Might, might be a little scary. 12, 13 may have to ask their parent, what does that word mean? Right. And because I don't go into the story what's actually done to the children because I didn't think that was appropriate. That's why I say 16. Thank you, Mira, for clearing that up. And thank you for joining me today. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. In the 1950s, kids were about baseball, the Lone Ranger, and apple pie. In the 60s, it was war, finding your freedom in the monkeys. The 1970s brought disco, the Brady Bunch, and self-empowerment. When the 80s arrived, the youth of the world celebrated individuality in a rocking beat. The 90s whizzed by with lots of grunge and many shades of gray. Now, the turn of the century has come and gone, and today's youth has something to say. Young Mind Society is the voice of a new generation. Tune in on AstronetRadio.com Fridays at 6 p.m. Central to hear DJ Y, Carl Papa, Queen Meat, and Princess Jazz lay down the humor, ideas, and thoughts of the now. Remember, Young Mind Society, Fridays at 6 p.m. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Vanquish of the Dragon Shroud, Murder, Intrigue, and the Hidden Wealth of the Red Nobility. And the author is Gregory E. Seller. And Greg joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Greg. Hello, Steve. How are you? Good to be with you. Well, great to have you with us. Fascinating book. It's right out of the headlines, modern headlines. Even though it is fiction, we could see this really happening because your mystery deals in a world of illicit assets and corrupt foreign politics. And in this case, they all collide. And you wonder, is anybody going to make it through this? That's right. It's uh, it's based on uh, current events, things that people have probably read about in the paper with uh, foreign governments and politicians hiding money in the United States because it's very lucrative to, to do so. And then it uh, centers around a fictional account of uh, what happens to a hedge fund manager and his associates and family when they find out that uh, their client is not who they thought it was. And it uh, it unfolds in a pretty interesting way. Well, first, before we start talking about the characters and this intriguing plot, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wrote the book. Sure. Well, I spent about uh, 40 years in the pension investment administration business for a major pension record keeper. Always had an interest in uh, investments, of course, as part of my work and politics. And uh, I'd always wanted to write a novel. And when I was living in New York City, I uh, noticed uh, just right across the street from where we lived uh, was the Time Warner Center. And there was always uh, interesting write-ups about um, multi-million dollar sales in that building and in some others. Yet, interestingly, at night, 
night, those buildings were mostly dark. You know, I'd look out from my balcony at Columbus Circle and see all the other buildings in New York lit up. And uh, However, this particular one and a couple of others that also were known for these sort of large purchases were largely dark. And I became to be curious about that, did a little bit of research on it, and found out that a lot of these properties are owned by um, limited liability corporations, which uh, hides the identity of the owner. And many of them appeared to be... Uh, foreigners who were uh, pretty much using these uh, as a place to park money, which was a little more discreet and hidden rather than putting it into a bank account or a mutual fund. And so that kind of formed the basis of my research I did for uh, the, uh, the, the part of the story on the investment side. So in this case, you have a you have a match that most people would think would go together, capitalism and communism. That's right. And it's, and it's fascinating because... Uh, if you look at the uh, the Chinese Communist Party, of course, it's it's communist, and of course, everyone thinks back in our days of being raised in the Cold War and the Soviet Union and so forth that socialism means that people sort of live uh, all equally, supposedly. And you have this fascinating situation in uh, in China, and it's it's true in other countries where the what they call the Red Nobility, which is the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party, have in some situations accumulated massive wealth, billions of dollars. It's hidden offshore uh, that they've acquired through you know various activities, legal and illegal, back in China. So you've got this dichotomy where you've got all these uh, businesses in China the, from all around the world, American, British, so forth, that are uh, capitalist-driven, yet the beneficiaries of much of the uh, uh, wealth from the capitalist enterprises are going to uh, members of the Chinese Communist Party. And there's been several articles written on this le- recently in several papers, including the New York Times. So it's just something that's only come to light recently because it's been hidden for, for a long time. The book has a startling opening. It just draws you in. Here we have, it seems to be, the wealthy enjoying their yacht and having a, a get-together, an evening of uh, just a, a friends, somewhat of a party, and yet the world comes uh, crashing down on them. That's right, and I think, uh, you know, one of the favorite uh, toys of the uh, the rich, uh, and I see it where I live here in Fort Lauderdale, certainly in, in California, uh, one of the, the most enjoyable parts of having a lot of money is you can buy yachts, and um, certainly going out for a celebratory evening on your company yacht, you're entertaining some of your clients, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a horrible explosion, the yacht starts to sink, and there's an event that happens in the last 15 minutes on the boat, which is very key to the entire story. And only five people witnessed the, the events of the last 15 minutes, and uh, one is missing and one's in a coma, and the other three are not talking. So a big part of the book starts right at the beginning on what happened in these last 15 minutes, and that sort of unfolds the, the basis for the mystery that, uh, that comes out of it through the rest of the, of the, of the novel. So tell us about this successful hedge fund manager, Logan Ehrenhart. Yeah, Logan is a successful hedge fund manager. He runs a big business uh, with his partner, Ethan Chandler, uh, located in Beverly Hills. They were uh, schoolhood chums back in the University of Colorado. They've been running a very successful hedge fund business, managing billions of dollars. And uh, they come to find out that their client or clients, they're not who they thought they were. And uh, it's one of those situations where something you can't control changes your life and I think if um, you've ever been in that situation or thought about it something happens out of the blue you can't control it it's a major event and your life changes 
overnight. And uh, the, the characters in the book have to make a decision, uh, all of whom are wealthy, successful people, that their life has changed. And what are they going to do to basically survive through the situation and, uh, and move forward, even though they can't control what's, what's occurred as a result of the, the sinking of the yacht? The cover looks pretty ominous. Uh, tell us about how you picked the title and why the ferocious dragon on the cover. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to give credit to Joshua Allen, who's the artist who did the the dragon. He's uh, in, employed by my publisher, and he did a great job, I think, on the front cover and the back cover. The uh, The title is taken the, from uh, the, the Dragon Shroud is uh, basically the kind of nickname for um, hiding assets from the Chinese uh, Communist Party members. The, a shroud is something that shroud, it's in, you know, covers something, and the dragon is the shroud of the red dragon. You know, and the red dragon has been a symbol of China for a very long time, preceding the, the Communist Party, of course. So the dragon shroud is uh, the, the shroud that hides the hidden assets, and that's what um, the title is actually taken from. And of course, the term the red nobility is, is what they refer to as the uh, the, the really elite of the Chinese Communist Party. That's the term, the Red Nobility is kind of a widely accepted term. So the, the Red Nobility is uh, who um, has the assets in the shroud is what tries to keep them secret until this event happens. And of course, the secrecy then comes out into the open. I've heard your book described as a mystery, uh, it's described as a murder novel, and also even a bit humorous. Uh, how would you describe it? Well, I think that's all accurate. I think if you are a mystery lover and you have a little bit of an interest in the investment world and a little bit of interest in politics, I think it's a perfect perfect novel for you to read because it is a mystery. It does involve, it does involve a murder. It does involve um, the investment world, but I think I've taken a lot of steps to make the uh, hedge fund business easy to understand. And if you're a little bit of a political junkie or read the headlines, you can see how these events are all actually happening today. And you don't have to... Uh, you can just go to the, to the newspapers every few days and, and see these events uh, described. And yes, I put a little humor in it because, uh, you know, life is not always just one dimension. I mean, even the most tragic circumstances um, sometimes have an element of humor, however ironic that might be, and I tried to include that in the book. Is there a political message here? Is it critical of China? It's not critical of China. I mean, I have a, a huge respect for the Chinese, especially for their civilization. It goes back, uh, you know, thousands of years and is one of the great civilizations of the earth. So the, the, um, I have a lot of respect for the Chinese people, and they're an amazing, amazingly creative um, force on the planet. And I think that uh, it's not critical of the Chinese. It is somewhat critical of the Chinese Communist Party because of the... Uh, you know, the way they suppress uh, free speech, the way they're, you know, taking, in some situations, not all leaders, but many of the leaders are using these assets to enrich themselves while there's still a huge swath of China that's in poverty. So it's probably a bit critical of the, uh, the, Chinese, uh, the Chinese Communist Party and maybe some excessive capitalists as well, but certainly not with respect to the Chinese people. And often when money is involved, uh, we sometimes don't want to ask the important questions because we really don't want to know the answer. Well, that's true. And, you know, in my uh, 40 years in the investment business, I found that most investment managers and clients, the vast majority, are extremely honest. But uh, you do come across these situations, and, of course, they've been in the headlines for forever, uh, where sometimes it's just too good to be true. Uh, you've got uh, a financial advantage that has come your way. You, you have sort of a gut feeling that this just doesn't seem right, but, gee, I'm making so much money 
I don't want to ask that question. And that's sort of the the beginning of the uh, the book is that uh, you know the fund managers are leading a fabulous life. Their families are very wealthy, successful, enjoying all the good things that life has to offer. And then this thing that's been in the background that they kind of knew was there, all of a sudden, you know, rears its head, and their lives are are thrown into a turmoil. Well, I love the characters. Are they going to live on? Well, I am working on a second book, and it is going to be uh, a sequel. And so, yes, to some some of the characters will will live on. As you know, if you read the book, some don't. But uh, I'm hoping to, uh, based on this book, if it's as successful as I'm hoping it is, that I will uh, complete a sequel. Besides Logan, who would you say is another very important or a couple very important characters? A little bit about them. Sure. Well, I think uh, one of the most important characters is Maxine Ehrenhardt. That's the wife of Logan. Uh, she is a key person who is actually central figure to try to find out what is happening. Uh, her her best friend, it's really her business partner, Seth, business partner, Seth. They work in the design business together. They're really very close. He ends up being a very key character as well. He has an interesting dimension. He sort of leads two lives, and I think that part of the story... I, gotten a lot of comments from readers they've enjoyed Seth's character very much and then there's another character uh, Alton Price who is sort of a, a fixer as you'd say in Hollywood he fixes uh, tough situations uh, for business people and celebrities and I think he's the other character I've received a lot of comments on uh, there's there's others that are in there but as far as the readers that have written to me and asked questions those are the primary ones I get questions on and another theme that you describe in your book of course when we face some life-threatening problems or what appears to be insurmountable we really don't know what our reaction will be until we're in the middle of it and we find out a lot about ourselves that's true and that's one of the things i wanted to bring out in the book and i've had a lot of feedback on that as well as i was mentioning before we all go about our lives we have uh things in certain order we wake up every day expecting something you know predictable to happen and when something really life-changing occurs that you can't control but you know that moment your life as you knew it is totally over you cannot change it it will not go back you've got to go forward in a different way then that you have to reach deep inside your soul and say what do i what do i do am i focused on survival am i focused on revenge Am I focused on redemption? You know, what is my motivation? And I think you'll see these characters who are all affected by the same event, the same, the last 15 minutes on the boat, then there's the sinking, and then each of the characters reacts in a very different way. I'm not saying anyone is better than the other, but you'll see the main characters all react to this tragedy in a very different way. For some, it leads to death, and to some, it leads to revenge, redemption, and just survival. So I think uh, it's, a, it's an interesting read if that sort of uh, topic is, inter- is of interest to you, which I think it would be to most people. We've been listening to Gregory E. Seller. He's the author of his book, Vanquish of the Dragon Shroud, Murder, Intrigue, and the Hidden Wealth of the Red Nobility. Greg, tell us, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, actually, it's available on uh, Amazon.com. It's also available in Barnes & Noble, and it's also available on iBooks. So if you want to uh, go online, uh, probably the quickest way is Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or iBooks. You can get either a hard copy or you can get the ebook version for only four ninety nine. So I think it's an easy book to get, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much, Greg, for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity.